Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, August 13th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I am joined on today's episode by Slash Film Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writer Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. All right, guys, let's get into the news today. Let's start off with something that happened, when was this, Brad? Over the weekend, I guess? Uh, Universal canceled the release of a movie called The Hunt. So, Brad, why don't you just sort of, like... Uh, give us the highlights of what we need to know about this movie and what happened here. Yeah, so The Hunt uh, is a movie directed by Craig Zobel that uh, kind of takes a cue from the most dangerous game and follows a group of uh, elites who have gathered up uh, another group of people and is hunting them for sport. Um, it's, you know, kind of a classic uh setup for a movie like this we've seen plenty of people hunting other people in a lot of different movies before but this one was apparently given a little bit of an extra uh charge and controversy because uh the script for this movie uh, apparently at some point refers to those being hunted as deplorables and the ones doing the hunting are apparently elite uh liberal people and the original title for this movie was Red State versus Blue State. So that only further cements in stone the sort of uh, political thematic elements at play in this movie here. So uh, the movie itself was already kind of in hot water because uh, the movie started its marketing push uh, around the time that the mass shootings in El Paso and Dayton happened. And since this is a, a very violent movie with, uh, with not just gun violence but other violence as well, uh, there was some backlash about marketing a movie like this during a time when people were still dealing with the fallout of a mass shooting. Granted, it's hard to find a time when we're not reeling from a mass shooting in the United States nowadays. Uh, but that's besides the point. Uh, in addition to uh, that, which caused Universal to stop their marketing campaign for the time being, there was suddenly uproar about the movie's uh, premise itself. Because the folks at Fox News found out uh, what was at the center of this movie. And since Donald Trump watches only Fox News, he found out about it and tweeted about it. And so there was political controversy, plenty of uproar. Uh, that combined with the timing of the release of this movie and when it was going to be marketed resulted in Universal making uh, the difficult decision to 
not release the movie uh, at this time. It's not indicated whether or not they will consider theatrical distribution sometime later once this is blown over or if it'll now go straight to video. Uh, and actually, just recently, a story came out um, that has Universal saying that this was a decision that they made before the controversy started stirring uh, with the uh, tweets from Donald Trump. And it was more so about being more sensitive to the, the timing around, around the mass shootings. Uh, either way, this is just uh, a frustrating situation because uh, even if that is the case, the image still makes it seem like this movie was removed just out of the fact that people were upset about it. And uh, yeah, it's a it's a very uh, annoying situation. Yeah, so there's a lot to digest there, a lot to talk about. Um, Chris, I want to start with you. I, I think I I think when this happened, you tweeted something along the lines of like I didn't really have any interest in seeing this movie anyway, but this is a a bad move basically. Um, yeah. So I just wanted you to expand on that a little bit. I mean, yeah, it, like I, yeah, like you said, I, I don't have really much interest in this movie. I thought the trailer looked kind of lackluster, but I, I just think canceling any sort of like art like this, even if you don't like it for these reasons, is just it's a it sets a bad precedent, and it's the it's the wrong uh, message to take away here. Um, even you know, I know Universal is now saying like, oh, we canceled this before. Trump lashed out on it, which I really don't believe at all. I, I think that's like them trying to like save face and be like, oh, we're we we did it, you know, on our own without it. And I really don't buy that at all. But even even if they didn't cancel it because of, of, of his complaints, it's just, you know, look, I get it. it. There is a serious gun problem in America right now. There is a serious, serious problem with gun control, and we need that to be taken care of. But canceling a movie isn't gonna affect that i i don't buy into that narrative that movies are what influence you know shootings i i you know mm -hmm. uh, you can i know people have you know various thoughts on that I, I just don't personally buy into that um brad what do you make of this entire situation you, you said it was troubling earlier but um i guess maybe bouncing a little bit off of what chris said there like do you think that universal do you think that there's any way to frame this where Universal made the correct move here? Uh, I think that if the if there wasn't the political controversy that followed uh, them already halting their marketing campaign just to be sensitive to the timing surrounding the mass shootings, then yes, because it, it wouldn't make sense for that, that to happen. There have been plenty of instances of studios delaying uh, episodes on TV that have uh, similar plot elements to disasters and tragedies that have happened in the real world that have made uh, headlines across the country. And so there, it's not without precedent, but it's the fact that this came after all of the political uproar and controversy uh, that makes it uh, poor timing for Universal to make that decision. Um, I'm, I'm with Chris as far as like, you know, doing anything like this and like basically self-censoring simply because it might seem like you might upset somebody is a little bit ridiculous. If, if art's not upsetting somebody, then it's probably not good art. Uh, that's not to say hunt, the hunt is, you know, the, this, you know, high art masterpiece film or anything like that, but it is a story that somebody wanted to tell that has uh, a reason to, to be told and has some significance to the filmmakers and those people who wrote it. So um, yeah, I don't know. It, it's just, it, it's frustrating that this, these kinds of situations uh, arise. 
Yeah, I, I want to point out, uh, there's a, an article written by Scott Mendelson at Forbes, and I'll link to his piece in the show notes, and he his headline is, Universal's cancellation of Blumhouse's The Hunt is morally indefensible and financially unavoidable. And I definitely agree with the morally indefensible part. I think, you know, like you guys, I, I think that there's not really much room for censorship in this type of form, <laughs> especially right now. But uh, Scott Mendelson makes some interesting um, I guess arguments in this piece, basically just saying, you know, Comcast, which owns Universal, is a massive corporation, and The Hunt is like an eighteen million dollar B movie that would have been lucky to gross seventy five million dollars worldwide, and maybe it's not worth the potential headache for Comcast to uh, release this movie. I guess in this moment, um, in this sort of firestorm of all of this stuff, because these companies at the end of the day, they care about making money. And like the idea that the hunt may not be worth uh, whatever might happen makes sense to me on, on some level. And like I said, I, I, you know, creatively speaking, morally speaking, all of that stuff, it, it's, it rubs me the wrong way that this major studio is canceling one of its releases, regardless of content, because they clearly cared enough about this story to green light it in the first place. But Mendelssohn sort of points out like, you know, we're and and Chris, you just did too. Like we're living in a country right now where where uh, gun control is a major thing on everybody's mind, and it, mass shootings are like uh, horrifyingly frequent. And there is the possibility that some deranged person could be paying attention to the conversation coming out of Fox News and Trump and whatever, and not even understanding the basic. Uh, story beats of this movie as, as have been laid out in several articles and maybe if this movie were to be released could you know look at it as like an opportunity to make a political statement by going into a theater and shooting up you know shooting it up because this movie has been sort of like caught up in this swarm and I, I'm wondering if Universal is just taking the safe road in an effort to prevent something that drastic from happening because now we sadly live in a country where something that drastic actually could happen uh what do you guys make of that i i had that same thought and like on one hand that is a legitimate thought and it, and it makes sense but the other time at the other end it, it it seems like if you're gonna live like that you are to to use a term that got thrown around a lot in my youth after 9-11 you are quote unquote letting the terrorists win basically if, if we're if that's where we are right now where we have to be like all right let's just start altering every single thing we do so we don't anger a potential shooter then i don't really know what the hell we're, do we're yeah. doing anymore yeah. if that's where we are as, as as a society yeah that's a fair point too um brad do you have any final thoughts on this no, that's pretty much exactly what I'm thinking too. Like it's 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 all fucked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So Chris, I know you're a big Stephen King fan, and our next uh, topic of conversation here involves a Stephen King movie that also seems to have <laughs> maybe some like problematic undertones in terms of like how people could theoretically react to this. So I figured it would be a, a decent transition to go from our conversation uh, about the hunt directly into this movie called Roadwork. So tell us a little bit about this and uh, what you think about the book, because I'm sure you've read it. Right. So this is not one of Stephen King's best books. Um, he wrote this early in his career under his uh, pen name, which was Richard Bachman, because believe it or not, when Stephen King first got started, publishers had this thing, this this concern where they didn't want 
writers to publish more than one book a year. They thought it would be, you know, oversaturation. And that's uh, wild. And he, I had never heard that before until I read your piece. I was like, what? That's crazy right. to me. And like, yeah, especially now, like when publishers would kill to have a million Stephen King books a year. But back at the beginning of his career, it was different. And as everyone knows, Stephen, Stephen King is very prolific. He does not take any time off. So he's constantly writing. So his solution was, all right, if I can't publish more than one book a year under my name, I'll use this pen name. And that way I can publish at least two books a year. So, uh, you know, he published several books under that name. This was one of them. Um, it's some of the, the Richard Bachman books are pretty good. Some of them are not. And this this, I would say, is is one of the not ones. Um, and that probably explains why it's never really been turned to a movie. But. As everyone also knows, we're in the midst of this Stephen King movie adaptation renaissance and people are running out of titles to adapt. And so they're, they're sort of like going to the bottom of the well here. And interesting enough, um, uh, Andy Machete, who you know directed it and the upcoming It Chapter Two, is going to produce this. So on on one level, that's kind of promising because he's clearly someone who gets Stephen King. But. Uh, here's where we get into the, the sticky issue. Um, the, the book, this, the book, I don't know if this, the screenplay is going to be different, but the book is basically about this angry, resentful white guy slowly going crazy and then taking up guns and shooting people who anger him. So uh, that, as we all know, is very topical to the times we live in. And I'm not saying we shouldn't make art about that. I feel like, you know, now is actually the time to explore that in a sort of artistic way. But I also can see this sort of kicking off a huge firestorm whenever it comes out, unless, you know, we miraculously solve gun control by the time it comes out, which uh, I won't hold my breath for. <laughs> so, yeah, this, I mean, this just sort of seems like a natural extension of the conversation we were just having. Like, Brad, do you think that there's any way that this movie comes out in that form and sort of makes it through the publicity grinder unscathed? You know, it, it's kind of uh, a toss-up because it's it just depends on how, you know, like if it gets in front of the right person and it gains enough steam because that person spread it around to others. So this doesn't seem... Like it's uh, quite as high profile, but then again, it, it always has the chance to be. You know, I, uh, it's just this is just the the kind of thing that just that frustrates me so much. It's just you you have no idea what's going to piss off the wrong people and it's you know, going to result in some kind of controversy. And so I, I don't know. It it probably just depends on if there's yet another you know mass shooting that happens around the time that the movie comes out. Yeah, it's really. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's so depressing to think about. Um, and I mean, obviously, there are like a lot of angles that you can approach decisions like this, specifically from, you know, from a studio perspective. But I guess it's encouraging that they are like moving forward with this and attaching the Muschietti family because they are, you know, they've proven that they know what they're doing with Stephen King works so far. So um, hopefully they're able to, I don't know, maybe make some tweaks that uh, that improve the story overall but even still i mean i, th I think chris ultimately you're, you're right like you know now seems to be the time to try to explore some of this stuff and and like damon lindelof's watchman show is supposed to be about coming to grips with the idea of of white supremacy in america and i, I saw somebody uh, i forget what outlet it was but i just saw like a, a tweet fly flash by in my feed like how is hbo going to uh, you know, market or, or promote or whatever uh, Watchmen 
if that is one of the central tenets that, <laughs> that Lindelof is trying to get at, isn't there the risk of that show also sort of falling into the same uh, hellhole that we've been talking about here? And I just don't know. Man, I don't know. I, I guess there are no easy answers here. But like, and and one thing that we didn't bring up with the hunt too is like, why do you guys think that Universal is it is it just because? Okay, so uh, sorry. Let me let me rephrase this. Let's pretend that uh, that that report that said that Universal had decided to release the hunt or, or cancel the release of the hunt before uh, Trump's tweets is actually true, right? So what do you think it was about that specific project that? cause them to get um, nervous about releasing it because there are a lot of major studio films that involve gun violence that are still coming out and are you know that have not been pulled do you think it's just that the like explicitly political uh, aspect of this story is what caused them to sort of uh, get cold feet a little bit uh, again assuming that this is this decision was made before the uh, all of those comments See, like, this is why I don't buy that, because the trailer, there's there's nothing political in that trailer. Like, I had no idea it had this deplorables plot element until all this stuff started coming out. Like, if you watch that trailer, there's nothing in it that, like, explicitly looks political. And that's why I just don't buy Universal's claim that they're just doing it to be sensitive. Like, I really do think there's really no other... <laughs> logical explanation and you know that's their prerogative i mean it's their movie they have the right to do with it whatever they want but it, it really it just all boils down to i'm really unhappy that this is the time we're living in and i would like yeah. it to stop yeah um i guess it'll be interesting to see if other you know because i remember like the on the slash film casts review of i think it was john wick chapter two that movie came out right around the time that of a mass shooting like surprise surprise in america and uh jeff canada had a lot of trouble like enjoying that movie in the wake of uh, something that was so horrific and, and violent in our country and i i you know lionsgate or whoever could have easily pulled the release of that movie because of that but they didn't and i'm just wondering what it was about this movie and this project that got universal to uh to sort of um I don't know, yank it like this. But anyway, yeah, maybe uh, we'll be tracking this story as, as more hopefully comes out about it. And hopefully the movie will actually see the light of day at some point, even if they have to like drop it on a streaming service or something. But uh, let's <laughs> probably continue our talks about depressing movie-related things and talk a little bit about Fox's future under Disney. Um, Brad, a, a recent report came out uh, that had some new details about uh, what Disney plans to do with Fox and its properties. What do we know? Yes. Uh, previously, uh, last week, we had heard that Disney was starting to scale back development on uh, pretty much all of the projects that they acquired with the uh, 20th Century Fox deal that started earlier this year. Uh, it turns out Disney was not impressed with the box office performance of some of the movies they got, which in uh, included Dark Phoenix, which is where a lot of the blame landed, uh, Stuber, and some other projects, and so they decided to pull back on any movies that they had acquired and really kind of change their focus and only allow movies like uh, the Avatar sequels, uh, the, a forthcoming, the forthcoming remake of West Side Story, and some other already uh, near-completed movies to stick around. And pretty much everything else that was in uh, development and hadn't yet made it in front of a camera was put on hold in favor of some remakes of 
properties like Home Alone and Night at the Museum, which are intended for the Disney Plus service. And it turns out that Disney is definitely uh, unhappy with what they're getting out of Fox so far, so much that they're kind of growing nervous about even some of the projects that they do have. Uh, there's a, a little bit in a variety story here where apparently there was a recent screening of Jojo Rabbit uh, for Disney executives, and apparently one of the executives uh, grew audibly uncomfortable during the screening, worrying aloud that the material would uh, alienate Disney fans. Um, Jojo Rabbit is a, uh, a satirical movie that's based on a book. Uh, it's directed by Taika Waititi, follows a German boy who has uh, Hitler as an imaginary friend, and he has his blind patriotism uh, challenged when he finds out that his mother has been hiding a, uh, a Jewish girl in their house. And so I'm not really sure what it is about this movie that alienates Disney fans, unless they're worried about alienating Disney fans that are Nazis. <laughs> um, so, But I imagine it has something to do with the uh, conservative side, the same kind of people who were very happy when James Gunn was fired as the director of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, simply because a lot of those people don't understand how satire works. Um, but uh, along with that, there's been um, like some shifting as far as movies that uh, were coming out. We, we had heard a while back of the long list of uh, projects that were canceled, like the Die Hard prequel focusing on John McClane before Die Hard and a Mega Man movie and stuff like that. Um, but there were also some other movies that were uh, seemed like they were going to move forward but now aren't happening. We found out about specific titles like Tinkerbells, which was a movie that was supposed to be about a group of misbehaving fairies. Uh, the adaptation of the comic book Lumberjanes was supposed to be an animated movie, but that's been completely canceled. And then there's also been some shifting as far as who's working on movies. Uh, apparently, Greg Berlanti, who is the producer of all of the shows in the Arrowverse, like Arrow and Supergirl and The Flash, uh, he was attached to direct two movies at Fox. One called The Editor that focused on Jackie Kennedy and another musical that was called Be More Chill. Uh, but now, apparently, he is not directing those movies anymore. Uh, he's only producing them, and it's not clear if those will even move forward. So Disney is just is really nitpicking and scrutinizing every single movie they have because of the the loss that they incurred. And it's, it's said uh, rival executives have estimated that based on just the general cost of development uh, for movies and things like that, that Disney probably got rid of about $50 million dollars. Uh, worth of movies that they that were in the works so they are uh, they're very very nervous uh very worried about the about fox and they're um putting alan horn alan bergman in charge of trying to move forward and uh quote uh, apply the same discipline and creative standards behind the success of disney pixar marvel and lucasfilm man so that sounds to me all of that the the i guess too long didn't read version of that sounds like the avatar sequels are you know, just gaining in importance over there. Like the the pressure is building on those movies to perform because it seems like a lot of the other stuff is just sort of falling to the wayside until Disney figures out what exactly they want to do there. Um, but I guess continuing our, our discussion about Disney, uh, Chris, you wrote about a possible Aladdin sequel. What's going on there? Uh, yes, so Aladdin was a big hit, as most Disney movies are. Even when they're not big hits, they're still somehow big hits. Uh, and producer Dan Lin gave an interview with Sci-Fi Wire, and he revealed that while, you know, nothing's officially greenlit yet, there's no, like, announcement saying Aladdin 2 is coming, he said they're having actual discussions over there. The powers that be are, are behind the scenes right now 
talking about Aladdin 2, whatever that may be. Um, uh, I'm sure as people know, they already made an Aladdin sequel of the animated film. It was The Return of Jafar. And Dan Lin brings that up and he says, you know, this sequel, if it happens, won't necessarily be The Return of Jafar. It's going to be maybe its own sort of thing. Either way, he says they have ideas for how to continue these characters. So, Brad, let me ask you, do you think that a brand new Aladdin story untethered from Return of Jafar uh, with the cast that we saw in the first movie could be something that you're interested in? No, <laughs> really? OK. All right. I just I, I don't I don't uh, I don't care. Uh, I'm not invested as much in the live action versions of these characters. I uh, I, don't, I don't know. It would take a lot for me to have an interest in, in a sequel. Um, I feel I don't know, uh, conflicted about this because I'm I'm not really a fan of like the creative decisions that that go into greenlighting these live action uh, remakes of the animated movies. But I have to admit that I am curious about a potential Aladdin sequel because I thought the cast was so good in the in this new live action movie from this year, and I think the idea of continuing the story in a way that wouldn't uh, cause a direct comparison between the clearly superior original thing and this live action thing um, would maybe result in like a better movie. Like they, they wouldn't have to be operating in the shadow of uh, such a beloved thing. Um, Chris, I, I assume that you probably have very little interest in an Aladdin sequel, but I want to ask you a question that I think I asked Brad and HT on a episode of the podcast last week and that is that like in in the coming years when disney runs out of the quote-unquote classics of these animated movies and they get down to oh god we have to remake the fox and the hound now or whatever it is um what do you think they're like how long do you think this this can go basically like the what do you what do you think their strategy is going to be um because it's it's been so focused on these types of movies for the past 10 years or so God, I don't even know. I guess I'll just start remaking other remakes. I have no idea what they're going to do. Eventually this bubble will burst because this isn't like superhero stuff where, you know, there's a lot of source material and there's a lot of sequel potential. I mean, I guess sequels are the only thing I can think of, of how they could possibly keep this going and man oh man just you know kill me now that's all i can say <laughs> all right uh well <laughs> let's talk about yet another disney property star wars the rise of skywalker brad we learned recently about the score of this movie that john williams is composing and uh, a sort of hint about what that might mean for the movie's overall runtime i personally hate runtime stories but this one seems like it might have might be of interest to our listeners yes uh, i'm usually right there with you as far as runtime is concerned but since everyone's hungry to know a lot as much as they can about the next and uh, installment of the star wars saga which is the final installment of the skywalker saga it is definitely of interest and uh, this bit of news comes from uh, a surprising source uh, a source that i didn't know existed um so john williams is the composer of all of the scores for the films in the primary star wars saga uh, he has been since 1977, and he's back for this one, which is uh, supposedly going to be the last time he composes a score for a Star Wars movie. Um, but John Williams also has a brother who is a conductor and arranger and composer named Don Williams. Uh, and that sounds like a joke, but it's true. 
<laughs> and uh, uh, Don Williams is also actually a very skilled percussionist. He's toured uh, with the likes of Bob Hope, Tom Jones, The Supreme, Sammy Davis Jr. And he's also worked on uh, stage productions like Cats and Phantom of the Opera. And occasionally, because John Williams is his brother, he's also played with the orchestras who have done the scores for movies like Jurassic Park, War of the Worlds. And now he's working with his brother on Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. And it was during a uh, discussion about the score for Jurassic Park that Don Williams kind of unprompted, basically, uh, talked about him and John, John's work uh, on the score for Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. And he said that John Williams has about 135 minutes worth of music to write for the movie. Uh, and he specifically said, so that kind of tells you how long the film is. And he says it's top to bottom music. They've done four days of work, and uh, so they've only scratched the surface, but they have about 34 minutes uh, in the can at this point. So, uh, going by that, um, we know that maybe the movie is at least two hours and 15 minutes long. Otherwise, it would seem weird if he was writing more music than that. Uh, obviously, there are plenty of times when composers write music that doesn't end up in a movie, uh, but it would, it would be a little bit odd if he was writing more music than the movie uh, needed right off the bat. Often, that times that comes when... Uh, a director doesn't like how a certain track works with a movie or things like that. Um, what's interesting is that that's a considerable amount more than the scores uh, length that we've seen for the previous movies. Uh, by, by we have we put down a whole list of com comparing sort of the length of the movie compared to the length of the soundtracks that have been released, and um, the average is that there's one hour more of movie than there is of music released on soundtracks. Now keep in mind that's not necessarily uh, a good representation of how much music is actually in the movie because the the soundtrack that is released often isn't the complete score as it's heard within the movie. There are some cues that are changed. There's some music that's repeated, and it's only sometimes like certain uh, themes and motifs that are get played in track form on on a soundtrack. Mm -hmm. um, and and there's even times too when the entire when all the music isn't available on the soundtrack too. For example, the Return of the Jedi soundtrack. Uh, only 45 minutes of the score was released when it first came out. But there are a lot of extra tracks that weren't used in the movie, and there's a lot of cues uh, that are in the movie that aren't, don't appear on the soundtrack in, in that form. So uh, we could either look at this and say, oh, maybe there's a three-hour Star Wars movie here, and so that's why there's two hours and 15 minutes of music. Uh, or we can look at this and, and um, basically take what Don Williams says at face value in that, this movie is just full of music in every single frame. And most of the Star Wars movies have a lot of score score in it that does fill out the movie. Uh, so that's it's not a de departure, but the way he makes it sound is that it's a little bit different from the other movies in that they're writing he's writing music to fill every aspect of it. And to go along with that concept, he, he also added every theme that you ever heard in Star Wars before now has been compiled into this last effort. He says, Leia... Yoda, uh, he says the Phantom, which I assume he means the Phantom Menace. Uh, Darth, are all they're all going to be in there, but as usual, he's hiding them in there. So you're not necessarily going to, like, flat out easily suddenly hear Yoda's theme or uh, what I would assume would probably be, like, the Duel of the Fates theme from the Phantom Menace. Mm -hmm. uh, he says you'll have to look for them uh, and find them within the music itself. Um, but that makes sense, considering this is supposed to be the end of the Skywalker saga, and I would imagine John Williams is kind of treating this as a, you know, this farewell uh, to you know, with all the work that he's done and paying tributes to all the music uh, that has been in Star Wars up until this time. Do you think that this movie is going to be like three hours long? Do you think they could get away with doing that because it's supposed to be the 
the conclusion to this entire saga? I think it's possible, um, but I don't think that it's likely. Uh, I think that they know Star Wars movies work best uh, when they're shorter. Um, the longest Star Wars movie it was The Last Jedi at 2 hours and 32 minutes, and we probably could have trimmed some stuff from it. Um, and it's I, I think that we're, pro- we're probably looking at a movie that comes in right along the standard, like two hours, 20, min- 20 minutes mark or something like that. All right. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll keep a close eye on that as we get a little bit closer to December and the rise of Skywalker's release. And our final news item of the day involves HBO Max paying an absurd or theoretically paying or potentially paying what I would define as an absurd amount of money to stream all of the episodes of The Big Bang Theory and Two and a Half Men. Brad, what do we know? What's going on here? Well, we definitely know Big Bang Theory and Two and a Half Men are two of the best sitcoms to ever be created. They are hilarious. They have funny jokes left and right. The audience is laughing out loud so you can hear them. So you know the shows are funny. (laughs) And that's why HBO Max is willing to pay a billion and a half dollars to stream all of the episodes that make up the series. That's 541 episodes total for each of these shows. Um, Apparently the big reason that the price tag is much higher than uh, what we've heard has been paid for shows like The Office and Friends, which cost uh, $500 million for NBC Universal and $425 million for HBO Max, respectively, is because uh, Two and a Half Men and The Big Bang Theory have not yet been available on streaming in their entirety. Uh, they've, they've only had a handful of episodes here and there and recent episodes from the current season that they were airing. Uh, available on streaming so this will be the first time that either of the shows has the complete series available to stream somewhere for people to watch and since these are two of cbs's most popular sitcoms uh ever and they they each ran for a long time it's uh, a big deal for fans to be able to finally see them uh somewhere on on a streaming uh platform so hbo max is clearly uh looking to build the library that they have that has uh fans hungry to see shows that they can't see anywhere else and these two will be part of that and there's a chance that seinfeld could end up being part of that at some point too because uh, that show is coming out on the market after the deal that sony pictures television has with hulu expires in 2020 and uh, sony actually worked it out so that the cable rights to the show will also be available um, when their deal with TBS expires at, at the exact same time. So all of the rights to Seinfeld will be available after 2020, and there's a chance that show could also be a big player uh, in the streaming wars as well. It's, it's said that it's not quite as popular on Hulu as shows like The Office and Friends are on Netflix, but considering it does have such a big following uh, and it also ran for a long time and is considered you know, one of the best comedy series of all time, it will probably be one of those shows that uh, is a, a hot commodity when it becomes available on the market again. Whew, man. Uh, okay. So I want to ask you guys this. Do you think that – so obviously we know that uh, that Friends is like a huge deal on Netflix. I'm wondering how much of that is because Netflix it's, itself was sort of the first-to-market major streaming service. And, like, Chris, you write a a column about streaming all the time, and I guess this is an anecdotal question, but do you think, I guess from the stuff that you see sort of coming and going to the service here and there, or just maybe the conversations you've had with people or articles you've read or whatever, do you think that people are going to be as likely 
to just throw on something familiar in the background on a different service, like a, one of these newer services. Like these, to me, still seem like they're sort of unproven, right? Yeah, I mean, <sighs> like in order to, you know, in order to throw it on, so to speak, you have to have the service. And I, I just, I don't, I, I see, like, I, I feel like I'm too biased here because Christ, I would never sign up for a service because it has the big bang theory on it. I would rather <laughs> be like boiled alive in oil than do something like that. So I, I don't know. I don't, uh, this boils down to this. I don't understand human beings and I don't know what motivates them. I'm like an alien. Basically <laughs> I, I've crashed onto earth and I don't understand you people or what you want. So I don't know if I'm the right person to ask about this. <laughs> well, basically. well I, basically like take, uh, take the actual shows and their content away for a second and replace it with like two shows that you love. Um, or, or, or just two other, like, uh, let's call them universally popular and uh, critically acclaimed shows. Let's, let's, you know, it doesn't. We don't even have to name what the titles are, but just the right. the notion of any company paying 1.5 billion dollars for uh, what is essentially comfort food for people to have on in the background that is not Netflix. I'm just wondering what you guys think about that. Like, do you think that? that something like that could be enough of a draw to convince people to sign up to this service just for, or not just for, but you know, with the, you know, that that's like an added benefit value to, to people. I mean, Pepsi spends millions of dollars on advertising each year, as does Coke. And everyone knows those two things exist and they love them no matter what. So <laughs> I, I just don't maybe maybe I just don't understand enough about how you know this side of the industry works and what how they know uh, you know what people want and what's going to draw them to a new subscription in in that way because I, I think it's you know pointless to spend millions of dollars even on Super Bowl ads uh, you know for a product that is just known the worldwide and that you don't ever need to advertise again and yet you know you have HBO Max willing to spend this much money on two shows that people have likely already seen simply because you're hoping that they just want to watch them over and over again. Um, so I, I really don't know. It's uh, it's tough to say. It's it is interesting though because um, something similar did happen with Friends, where Friends was not easily available on streaming until the deal with Netflix was struck in 2014, and that's turned into one of Netflix's uh, biggest draws. And I I don't know if. Uh, Two and a Half Men or Big Bang Theory have a fan base that is as big as Friends, since Friends has been around longer and is probably considered to be more revered uh, among TV fans. But you know, it's I feel like not all streamers are going to survive this battle. Yeah. Um, but but considering how much money HBO Max is throwing around and how many uh, different outlets they have for movies and TV that they can bring under this banner, I, I think that they'll probably be fine. Yeah, I mean that's two billion dollars for three shows. Like, and and do we even know like how long these uh, contracts would last? Like, is this a five-year deal? Is this a a two-year deal? Like, do we know anything about that, Brad? No, I don't think that there's been any indication as to how long they have the rights um, to to these shows with the, with the, that that price tag. Just that they are exclusive. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm right there with you in that. I think. All of this is there's so much money being thrown around and uh, all of these streaming services. We're at a really interesting point right now where we're just before the 
you know, the the bubble is going to break. And I'm very curious to see which properties and streaming services and companies and all of that stuff are going to be left standing and how people are going to be able to watch their beloved shows uh, once these some of these things inevitably implode. But uh, I guess that's a good point to end on, since that seems to be the general tone of everything we've been talking about on this episode. So uh, that is going to bring us to the end of today's episode of Slash Film Daily. Before we go, where can people find more of your work online? Uh, Chris, let's start with you. Uh, I'm at SlashFilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at CEvangelista413. And Brad? Uh, on Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderson, and I have my own podcast called Go Flix Yourself, F-L-I-X, on iTunes and other podcasting platforms. You can find me writing at SlashFilm.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Ben Pears, and you can find more about all the stories we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com and linked inside the show notes. This podcast is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. And also, don't forget to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. That helps us out a ton. Tell your friends about the show. Spread the word any way you can. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow.